Good morning, everyone. It's great to have you here at First Christian Church. Good morning to each of you here in the West Auditorium and also to those of you in the East Auditorium. I'm very glad that you're going to spend some time with in Scripture with us today. I invite you to take your Bible. We're going to look at Matthew, which is about that far, Matthew chapter 11. And uh, grab a Bible in the pew rack in front of you. If you don't have one with you, maybe you have it on your smartphone. Or um, in the East Auditorium, there's somebody moving around the room with some Bibles right now. If you don't own a Bible, we'd be glad if you'd take that home as our gift to you. And for those who are guests, let me introduce myself. My name is Wayne, and I'm part of the pastoral team here, and I'm very glad you're with us today and uh, looking forward to spending some time with you. So um, my parents are here. As a matter of fact, mom and dad are joining us here from British Columbia. Would you guys welcome them? And I tell you what, after, before we finish in here, we're going to run over and we're going to meet you. You see a lot of the people in the East Auditorium too, okay? So we'll get ready. Get ready. We're going to walk. We're going to walk fast, okay? But in the meanwhile, uh, I went up to visit them in British Columbia. They live outside of Vancouver, B.C. Um, last week. And uh, the staff took care of things while I was gone, of course. I'm grateful for that. But I, was, uh, I traveled through Dallas, left out of central Illinois, tr transferred planes in Dallas, and went up to Vancouver. And while I was in Dallas... A feed on Facebook came up from one of the ladies in our church, and I'm scrolling through things, and she asked a very provocative question that had all kinds of responses um, from people in the community and her friends and family, and um, I mean, it got a lot of interest, and she said, this is her suggestion, that people should um, post an opinion on Facebook that was not political. She didn't want any political chat. I think we're done with that, but she wanted to hear of people's opinions that where they would say something that would be, if you will, wildly unpopular compared to everybody else. It was almost a pet peeve list. And <laughs> people responded in the hundreds. And I'm sitting there in the airport going, wow, and bursting out laughing. And so I thought you need to see just a few of those today. For example, one woman responded and said, Starbucks, Starbucks is not my favorite coffee. There. I said it, it's like a terrible secret I've kept in for so long. She was so glad to get it out. A young woman wrote, dry shampoo is gross. I'm going, well, what do you expect? <laughs> Why would you use dry shampoo unless you absolutely have to as a like last, last, last resort? Anyways, okay. I don't like potlucks at work. I don't know what you do in your kitchen, and it weirds me out. <laughs> People ask, why don't we have church-wide potlucks anymore? That's the reason right there. As a matter of fact, this, did you hear? Did you hear in California there was a church that served a potluck Thanksgiving, people, Thanksgiving dinner? Three people died. You are shameless. You're laughing at their deaths. We're going to talk about that next week, about pity and compassion. No, seriously, they had a potluck, and somebody served tainted food. A bunch of people got sick. Three people died Thanksgiving Day in California. That's why we don't do them around here, unless it's a very small group, and we know who's supplying what food and what kitchen it came from. I don't like the McRib or Shamrock Shake. Well, again, what do you expect? Ribs at McDonald's? Doesn't make sense at all, Okay. I had to put this one in because of my son-in-law. If God intended for us to play soccer, he would not have given us arms. 
Now, you may not know this, but my son-in-law is a professional soccer player. He makes his living playing soccer, and so that's just too funny. I, you know, he was here, he just didn't, couldn't believe it when I, he was here in an earlier service. When it comes to, to sports, I'm completely uninterested in conversation regarding statistical nonsense on the topic of sports. I'd rather create hangnails, rip them out bloody with my teeth or use pliers than hear about how X player did. There's a little bit of anger behind that, don't you reckon? <laughs> Just a wee bit of anger. In my opinion, in my opinion, it says, kiwi skin is delicious. That's only your opinion, mate. There's only one of you out there. Is kiwi skin? Here's one. Cats are of the devil. Oh, now you've gone from preaching to meddling, right? Some of you are going, yes, and others are going, never. Or talk about never. This one is not going to be on the screen. But a number of people said that they hate crackles. Oh, central Illinois heresy, right there. Ah, oh, taboo, taboo, taboo. You should never have that opinion about our famous crackles here in Decatur, right? So here, here's my thought. Since all these people got to publicly proclaim in a fairly large form their pet peeve, maybe I should step up and just take it up one more. And I should, in a sermon, give you some of my pet peeves. Like, for example, pimento cheese. Why? Just why? Why? Leslie, my wife, says there are things, three things she hates, and I would agree with her. Pimento cheese is one, and then, that one, then she goes, she says, pimento cheese, I'm in agreement. Pimento cheese, coconut, Satan, and all his works. <laughs> it's interesting to me that pimento cheese is ahead of Satan and all his works, but there you go. Here's one that Leslie doesn't agree with me. I'm one of my pet peeves, biscuits and gravy. Oh, shame on me, right? Can I just say it's just not right? I mean, why would you put something heavy like that on your belly in the morning? It's not right. Or one that I think all of us would agree, car trouble. Oh, pet peeve, right? Let, let me tell you about car trouble. And we have many fine mechanics in our church. And I, I'm grateful for that. But let me just say this. If having a good attitude is, let me put it this way, if, you have to, if salvation and eternal life are dependent upon having a good attitude, which by the way they're not, but if eternal life was dependent upon having a good attitude, then car trouble would send me to hell. <laughs> Straight up. There's no debate about that, right? Because that's just... One, one last one that's probably me only, but um, it's really where I've been going with all these pet peeves and why I brought them up to you today. It's, um, it's just something that I bothers me. I mean, it doesn't bother you, but a pet peeve of mine is that when radio and television commercials start with a question, and they go, such and such, uh, and I go, well, if I'm going to listen to that question and the answer is no, then I'm not listening to your commercial. For example, if, if, if there was a radio commercial that you hear as you're driving down the road, do you wonder if your gutters are full of leaves? No, I don't wonder that. 
So at that point, I'm immediately shutting off the commercial, right? Because I'm, it doesn't apply, I'm thinking it doesn't apply to me. Whereas if I was writing that commercial to bring more people into the story, I would go something like this. The leaves have completed their annual trip from their branches to our streets, our lawns, and your gutters. You need help. We're here for you. Help, call us to help you prepare your entire property for winter. Suddenly you're going, okay, maybe I didn't give any thought to my gutters, but at least in listening to the story, I'm a little more engaged. And so that was all a prelude to today's message. Because I had, an, I had considered starting my message today was simply a question. What about this? And I thought, but what if people immediately, if I ask the question, somebody goes, well, I'm not interested in that. Then, you know, you're playing solitaire on your phone through the rest of the message. And that's probably, well, it might be okay, depending on how you rate the message. But, I, but nonetheless, that was my point. So I thought, rather than start the message today with a question, how about if I tell you a story and I issue a challenge? I issue a challenge to see what what question is this story answering? So listen throughout the next few minutes and see if you can figure what question this story is answering. And then we'll, we'll put some observations on it together. Here's the story. Many years ago, I'm talking many years ago, an older woman, past middle age, Elizabeth, she faced a difficult dilemma. Elizabeth was known to her friends as Lizzie, and she was married to a fellow named Zach, and they had a problem. They had no kids. They were both well past the age when people have kids, and in their day and time, that was a big problem because it was before Social Security or pensions were invented, and when you got old, you had to rely on your kids for both care and for resources, and they didn't have any. They wondered what they were going to do. How are they going to face old age? But in a divine and supernatural way, as Lizzie and Zach continued to love one another through this difficult situation, Lizzie's womb suddenly opened and sprouted a fetus, and Zach and Lizzie were expectant parents later in life. They were astonished. All the neighbors were astonished. It was amazing. I mean, after years of waiting and waiting and waiting and finally accepting the fact there are no children coming, they were expecting a baby boy. We have people in the life of our congregation who've experienced that. And you understand the anguish. And I want to say, as a congregation, we understand your anguish and would like to be able to pray with you about that and walk you through that. But for Lizzie and Zach, their story changed. A baby was on the way, a baby boy, and when he was born, they named him John. Now, it was a supernatural event in their life, but it wasn't the only supernatural thing that occurred in their family, because Lizzie had a young, unmarried cousin. The two women lived a few miles, a few villages apart. Lizzie was older. The young cousin was in her teens, and one day, the young teenager came to visit the cousin, Lizzie, and she had a secret, and she whispered it to Lizzie. I'm pregnant. Now, that was difficult because the young teenager was unmarried. Her name was Mary. She was engaged to a guy, a fellow by the name of Joseph, but he wasn't the father of the baby. Both Mary and Joseph said, no, this baby that Mary is expecting is not from us. The father of the baby is God, is what they said. Wow. 
crazy story, unbelievable, except to older Lizzie. Lizzie believed Mary. She was the sort of older woman who, who simply accepted young people's ideas. In, and in fact, these two cousins, decades apart, but both in the same situation, if you will, expecting children, they shared all the secrets and whisperings that women have when they're pregnant. Men, we have no idea what those are. Ladies, you here who have been pregnant, you know how the other ladies gather around. And it wasn't long before not only did, Mary, did Lizzie have a little baby that they named John, but Mary had a baby too, a baby boy. And his name was Jesus. There were two cousins then, two little babies born just months apart. And these days, they, they probably would have gone to preschool together. Maybe their moms would have enrolled in mops together, mothers of preschoolers, and gone through those classes. But they, they did life together as a family. They were different in some ways, like, like John. John was a wild, he was a wild sort of fellow. He didn't like to cut his hair. When he was an adult, he, he wouldn't wear clothing that everybody else wore. He always wore clothes that were made from animal skins, and he'd eat really strange foods. Like one of his favorite foods was locusts. Can you imagine? Locusts that he would dip in honey. <laughs> I'd rather have pimento cheese sandwiches dipped in gravy. That's a little more palatable, okay? Both the kids moved through their childhood and got into their teenage years on the cusp of adolescence. As a matter of fact, Jesus on the cusp of his adolescence at 12 years of age, something really crazy happened to him. The family took a, a family vacation into the big city. They went to Jerusalem. And while they were there for a few days, Jesus got lost. He was lost for two or three days. They didn't know, the family didn't know where he was. And when they finally found him, you know what John heard him say? What do you mean a big deal? I'm 12 years old, aren't I? Can't I have some time alone? No, he said, well, I was just talking about spiritual stuff and where they've, they've, they'd found him in the temple discussing spirituality with the leading wise sages of the day. They said, why did you do that? And you know what John heard him say? Well, God told me to. So apparently Jesus was this spiritual fellow, but John was too, but in a kind of a weird way, at least as compared to others. He, he, by the time he got through his teenage years, moving on to his, his 20s, he went and lived out in the wilderness by himself. These days we'd say he went off the grid, you know, a long way away, and apparently while he was out there preaching, a lot of people really liked what he had to say. It was a heady time. They came from all the towns and villages to hear his speeches and his sermons, and John's sermons were full of blasts and accusations. He was always railing against the status quo, and his fiery approach, it caused many to consider their own spirituality. They listened, they learned, and they liked. They believed. They changed their behavior. They even got baptized. As a matter of fact, so many got baptized that he developed a moniker, a nickname. He became known as John the Baptist. And John was pretty special in that since he'd heard about Jesus and Jesus' mission from a young age, he bought into it. He'd heard about that, and they were cousins. They grew up together, and he personally figured it out. He started telling people, my cousin, that Jesus guy over there, he was sent from God as the Messiah. He's the one who's supposed to save all of humanity in the cosmos. In fact, there was one time when he said to his followers, 
You may think I'm pretty special out here in the wilderness doing all this crazy stuff, but can I tell you about my, my cousin? He's from God. I'm involved in ministry, yes, but my ministry is simply this. I'm supposed to point to the ministry that Jesus has. His mission is so powerful. His personality and message are so important. Well, I'll put it this way. He's more important than I am. He's so important. I'm, I'm not worthy to bend down and untie the straps on his sandals. There they are. When he says that, they're both at about 30 years of age. Childhood is gone now, and they're living their lives. But you know, a kind of life that John had, a different lifestyle, a lifestyle that challenges the status quo, that can be quite dangerous at times. A fiery personality can sometimes get burned, right? And that's truly what happened to John. See, all these people going out into the wilderness to hear what John has to say, and he's railing against the status quo, and the local authorities are getting a little bit worried about his speeches and the way in which the crowds are beginning to, um, well, they're having trouble controlling them. And so Matthew chapter 14 indicates that Herod, the local politician, became so worried about it, he actually arrested John and had him bound and put in jail. And it was really a turning point in John's life. Because while he was in jail, he began to wonder about his life and how it was moving forward. And like prisoners, I would suspect, anyone who's been in prison in any way, you've got some time to think. And he began to question, what is it that got me here? Did, did, did I do something wrong? And is it possible this whole ministry thing, and particularly the, this whole ministry that I'm pointing to Jesus as God's son, The story of, that my mother told me, that my cousin Mary told me, that how Jesus was born, about a virgin birth, did I buy in too soon? Is it really true? And if it is really true, then why is my cousin, who apparently is supposed to be the Son of God, why is allowing me to wallow in this prison if I've been duped? Is Jesus, my cousin, really the Messiah, the one to save all of humanity? He's thinking about that. And that's the background to Matthew chapter 11. I invite you to read with me, beginning in verse 2. When John, who was in prison, heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent his disciples to ask him. So he's sending his followers to his cousin, Jesus. He says, are you, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? In other words, all my life... I've known that you were the Messiah. I was told that. I believed it. But I'm just wondering now, particularly since it's ended, ended up, I've ended up in prison. I, should, are, we, are we right or are we wrong? Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear, the dead are raised. Good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who doesn't stumble on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. So Jesus wants to ask the crowd, why did you go out to visit John in the desert? What did you expect to see? A reed swayed by wind, somebody kind of just wishy-washy? If you didn't expect that, then why did, you, why did you go out there? Did you expect to see a man dressed in fine clothes? 
Well, not for a guy who's gone off the grid. No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? You want to hear some strong language? Well, yes. And I'm going to tell you, you heard more than some strong language from a prophet. This is about the, this is the one who was written about. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Truly, I tell you, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. So from prison, John is asking a question that probably resonates with you today. It's really, if you will, everyone's question. Jesus, are you really the guy? Are you really the Son of God? Are you really the Messiah? I mean, you can imagine what John's thinking. In the story of my life, I've been told throughout all my life, throughout my childhood, are the stories that I learned as a kid really true? Or did I buy into the story too soon? My life circumstances certainly don't seem to bear out this business of a new Messiah, of a new vision, a new day, a new kingdom of God. I've wandered in the desert, living a very spiritual life, and it's got me a stint in jail. Give me a break. By the way, by the way, life got incredibly more difficult for John. The long story short is the local politician's wife took an extreme disliking to John and arranged for his head to be cut off. True, true. Telling people about Jesus got John's head separated from his neck. Decapitation. Is that what happens if you follow Jesus? That's what happens if you point, your head, point, point to Christ? So there's the story. Again, the challenge for you today is, what's the question that the story is answering? Why is that story in Scripture? Because if, if you... Th- I've got some observations for you to maybe help you figure out the question. And uh, first of all, think about John's experience. You'd think that if he really, he would expect that if, if he's been out telling people about Jesus, then he would think, okay, I'm 30 years old, Jesus is 30 years old, and as Jesus' ministry grows and I'm the one that's pointing to him, my ministry should grow as well. But that's not what happened at all. As a matter of fact, the exact opposite happened. As Jesus' ministry increased... John's ministry and his life took a downturn all the way to death. And sometimes here in Western Christianity, sometimes I think we paint Christianity as, well, it's all roses. No, there's really good news. Salvation is offered in Jesus Christ and forgiveness of sins leading to eternal life is available. Absolutely. That's the best news of all. But that doesn't mean that life is easy. As a matter of fact, according to John's story, following Jesus means he increases, but his followers decrease. And it's not always an easy decrease. Think about how Jesus put it, or see how Jesus put it in the verse right after the passage we just read. He's just said that John the Baptist is the greatest, and then he says in verse 12, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Apparently, if you follow Jesus, there's a potential for struggle. For violence, apparently, the kingdom of God, while it does bring freedom to people, Jesus himself said that in God's kingdom, the blind receive sight, the deaf hear, the lame walk, the dead are raised. 
Good news, forgiveness of sins is available. That's the good news, it's the story for many people. I'm always encouraged when I hear of those kinds of stories here at our church where lives are changed and people who are blind and people who are deaf and when they're actually healed physically or when they, are, when they receive the good news of Jesus Christ and their sins are forgiven. That's always great news and I look forward to hearing more of those stories but I'm also aware that in the midst of those stories in the midst of John participating in those stories, he followed Jesus all the way to his death. And that death was part of God's plan. You go, wow, that can't be right. Well, think about Jesus. Jesus followed God's plan all the way to death. You know, on a regular basis, I hold the hands of dying saints and their bodies are riddled with disease and pain, sometimes old age, not always. And I watch and I pray with them as they follow Jesus Christ all the way to death. I pray, I trust, that one day I'll have the courage to follow Jesus all the way to death. I, I, I think I can, I believe I will, Here's why. Because death for a Jesus follower is a temporary, momentary state. That's a big lesson from this story. The scripture says that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that for John, yes, his life took a downward turn. But at the bottom of it, what happened? He met God. It's two extremes, if you will, in this story. Good news that each follower of Jesus gets to participate in God's kingdom now. That's what Jesus is saying. Hey, the blind are, the blind are seeing this good news. It's happening right now. But even the people who received sight, the people who received hearing, in the long run, what happened to them? They died, right? Good news for now, but even better news for the long term. That the people who follow Jesus, we are aware of this. Another observation. That our present status, regardless of what it is, our present status is not the final moment. Friend, I've got really good news for you. God's kingdom is in play. Absolutely. Jesus' ministry on earth, on earth, culminated in his death and resurrection. But that's already done. But there's more to be completed yet. And you go, well, how? Well, I asked the staff to help me create a timeline moving from left to right that might explain this a little bit better for you. For example... If you look at the story of history, the entire cosmos and humanity, you've got creation, right? The cosmos is created, and God places Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, and it is really, really good at creation. But they mess up. They screw up badly, and on behalf of all humanity, they take us on a downward spiral, and we end up from the time of Genesis through to the, to the end of what we... Christians call the Old Testament, you've got this bad news. Now there are, there are ups and downs along the way, but the bad news is there's no real hope for humanity that people keep messing up until you get to what? Until you get to the birth of Jesus Christ. And for the sake of today, I've called that hope line number one. Jesus' ministry and his arrival here on earth was the development of hope for all humanity. The blind could see, the deaf could hear, and even greater beyond that, sinners were forgiven. And we live now, though, in a period on the other side of Jesus' earthly ministry. 
on the other side of the high moment of his resurrection when he said, in terms of death, it is finished. There is now more to life than, than, than arriving at death. And what a lot of us have experienced and will yet experience, some others will experience in the days ahead. On the other side of Jesus' life, on the other side of his death and resurrection, there are some incredibly great moments, absolutely. But who are we kidding? There are also some downturns. Our lives have ups and downs. The story of humanity has ups and downs. And when Jesus came as a baby in Bethlehem to bring forgiveness, we go, that's hope line number one. But because there's a hope line number two, there's also a second line of hope for us. We get to experience God in heaven forever. And we're living right now until we get there in the in-between period. As a matter of fact, I'd say it this way. It's my opinion that we live in the most exciting times in the throughout all of human history because we live knowing what Jesus has already accomplished and yet also knowing what's coming, uh, coming down, the, down the pike toward us. That the results of Jesus' earthly ministry that we have access to forgiveness of sins is great news. Jesus came as a baby. But now, more is coming. In other words, God's kingdom is not just suspended. It's not like, well, we're just kind of hanging out waiting and it's like, no, it's still in play. There is more coming on God's timeline for you. And you go, well, how? Well, let me see if I can explain this way. Maybe you're familiar or you've heard the name. You may not be very familiar with this story, but you, you've heard the name of Schubert. Franz Schubert was a famous composer in Vienna in the um, early 19th century. He lived a very young life. He died at 31 years of age. There's a, there's a famous musical line from... The, one of the uh, symphonies, uh, uh, symph for those who are interested, it's symphony number eight in B minor. And so you go, oh, I know that. Well, I, none of us know that. I know it because I read about it this week. So there you go. <laughs> it, the, the opening line goes like this. It's, it's, I want you to imagine with me, you're sitting in, in an auditorium and there's symphonies up there and the big double basses start with very low notes that are joined by the cellos, the second strings, okay? And they play this very slowly, very quietly. It goes. Sounds ominous, doesn't it? Do you want to hear it again? Here it is. Do you hear the story? Oh, what's that about? It sounds like the beginning of the opening of a movie, right? Don't you want to know the rest of it? You want to go, okay. Listen to it, how a symphony plays it. And see if it wouldn't be. It sounds like a movie about to start, right? Here's some more of the story being added. Oh, it's a Bourne. It's a Jason Bourne movie, isn't it? There's all kinds of mystery there, right? And you can see the credits rolling as the movie's about to start. The popcorn is going to stop eating and watch, right? Well, let me, let me give you some more information about this. Because what's fascinating about this particular symphony is that sadly, as interesting as the story starts, Franz Schubert never finished the work. 
It's known as Symphony Number no. Number Eight in B Minor, his unfinished symphony. He did write a lot of it. For example, here's a photo of one of the uh, opening pages of the score. There are two major parts of the symphony that he wrote, but that, in a nutshell, that's all that's available. He never wrote the third and final part. And musicologists in Western music history have always wondered, why didn't he finish writing it? I mean, he wrote the first two parts in 1822. It wasn't that he died, you know, with it unfinished. He'd lived for another six years. And there's, it's like, well, why did he stop writing? What happened to the rest of the story? They have offered two reasons. One is that maybe he just grew tired of writing for symphonies uh, because, and maybe just entired said, well, I'll just move to piano. And because there are parts, some small parts of what would appear to be a third movement for piano only. And why didn't he move that to, to, to a full symphonic score? They don't have any idea. A, a second reason that they think really comes into play, it was known that he developed syphilis. And syphilis, as you know, impacts the brain. And there's a question, that, did the illness just mess with his productivity? And thus, he left us with this story that has no ending. By all accounts, at an early age of 31, with the symphony un, unfinished, Franz Schubert's story, and particularly the story of Symphony Number no. 8, it tells a sad and poignant story that has intrigued the people who study the history of Western music since he died. And his story points to the question that is answered in, Mark, in, in Matthew chapter 11 surrounding John the Baptist. Remember you, I said that you had to figure out the question that this story answers? What is it? What does John's story tell us? It, it's, it's a question that is important to all people all people, particularly followers of Jesus Christ. If you're a follower of Jesus today, here's the, here's the question. You ready? What happens when your life should be going great, but instead seems to be going in a downward spiral? Because isn't that what happened to John? He'd pointed to Jesus. He, he'd grown up with Jesus. And for crying out loud, if anyone should have said, well, I'm in the right place at the right time for something really good to happen, it should be John. Yet he ended up in prison. He ended up getting his head lopped off. Friend, if like John, you are following Jesus today, may I remind you, you are in the in-between time, the time between Jesus' earthly ministry and his second coming. And just as you wait for Christmas, so put your, your hope, yes, in the results of Jesus' earthly ministry, the forgiveness of sins, and then wait. Wait for the final culmination of all, in, of all human history, the full exposure of God's kingdom for all to see and for it to be made evident in your life in new ways. See, it just, Jesus didn't just leave the earth with the symphony unfinished. No, he is still writing the symphony of the cosmos. We're just halfway through. He is still writing the symphony of your life, that composition. It's still being written. And I've got really good news. You've gone through hope line number one. Well, let me tell you, friend, as wonderful as that is, and with all the undulations in your life that have come through after that, the crescendos and the decrescendos, the ups and the downs, may I remind you, the final crescendo has yet to be heard in your life and in all of creation. Let us pray together. God, thank you for these men and women here today. In both auditoriums, Lord,
I pray for them. I pray, God, that you would graciously work in our lives. Lord, there may be people here today who don't know you yet. They have not yet figured out what it means to walk with Christ. Through the work of your Holy Spirit, call them to you. Call them to a place where they'd say, God, forgive me and get me on the other side of hope line number one. And Lord, for all of us, despite the, the crescendos and decrescendos, the undulations of life, God, work in us. Give us great hope for the day when that second line of great hope we brought to us. Give us courage for living this in between time, we pray in Christ's name.